Okay, morning, and um, it's great to be with you. For this. this is week 10 of 12 in this series, Origins, Stories of Hope in Genesis, and what we've done is traced the, really the rescue plan of God through this book and seen how through this promised seed, this snake crusher, this victor over sin and death, how God's going to rescue the world, and we've been doing that really by looking at one large family. It's really been like an extended soap opera where you've got this big family that's a mess that God is using to rescue the world and we're tracing the promise through the generations. That's how the series has mainly gone. And this morning things are almost going to hit a new low in terms of the antics of this family because the story we're looking at today is the story of a man named Judah who slept with his daughter-in-law whose name is Tamar but only because he thought she was a prostitute, uh, which obviously means everything's all right. Um, So it's a bit of a troubling, weird story, and one that is likely to provoke some reaction in us. And what we're really wanting to do is say, why is this in Scripture, and how do we learn from it, and how do we find Christ in it? And so if you could turn to Genesis 38, that would be brilliant, Genesis 38. If you are new to Christianity or to the Bible then there are two things you need to know about this extended family that we've been looking at for this term or this series. One of the things you need to know is that this family carries the hope of the whole world on their shoulders. They are the family through whom God is going to bring a rescuer to save the whole world from the consequences of sin and death. Right? That's one of the things you need to know. This is the family from whom Jesus will eventually come. This family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and their children is a family to whom 4 billion people of the world, 7 billion people, still look and say, that's where my ancestry comes from. Right? So all Christians, Muslims and Jews, go back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and say, they are my people. That's where I get my heritage from. Including almost all of us, but over half the world's population. So this family is a big deal. Right? The Abrahamic religions are a big thing. And this family carries that promise, although they don't look like it, they carry the promise that they will be that much of a deal, because ultimately Jesus will come from this family. So that's one of the things we need to know about them. The other thing we need to know about them is that they are a total mess. They are a pig's ear, they are a dog's dinner, they are a basket case. And what they do in this book is, as we've read it, is they take it in turns to be a greedy, faithless, vindictive, polygamous, leery, petty, lazy, incestuous, violent, vengeful, misogynist, boastful, backstabbing, adulterous mess. That's who they are. And so are we. So are we. These people are like us, only more so. When I read this, when I read about these people, I think, wow, I thought I had flaws. Look at these guys. Look at the people through whom God chose to save the world. And it actually really helps me. And we're going to see that theme return again today. So this family is both the hope of the world and a great example of what's wrong with the human race. And that makes them of great benefit to us to look at and understand. It's also a fairly confusing family because a lot of people have more than one wife and a lot of people don't only have sex with their wives and a lot of people have lots of children. So I just thought it'd be helpful to put up a family tree on the screen so you could briefly see what we've done in this series. Most of our time has been spent looking at the the story of Abraham's family. So Abraham married to Sarah but has a slave girl, Hagar. Abraham and Hagar have a son, Ishmael. Abraham and Sarah have a son, Isaac. Right, so we, saw, we looked at Abraham, we looked at Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah and they have twin boys called Esau and Jacob. 
And we saw that story as Hillary told us and then Phil told us that story. Jacob is then married to two women, one of whom he loves, the other one he doesn't. He's married to Rachel and Leah, but both Rachel and Leah also have slave girls that Jacob also has sex with and has children by. So he ends up having sex with four women and conceiving children by all four of them. And that's why he's ended up with 12 boys plus a daughter called Dina. And so they are that long list of 12 sons across the middle. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, who we're looking at today. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And they are the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, And so even to this day, you will bump into people. You may work with people whose last name is Levi or Benjamin or Judah. And they're Jewish people and Jewish by heritage. They will trace their line back to these guys. Right? This, is, this family is a big thing in shaping the world. And what we then find is that Joseph has two boys called Manasseh and Ephraim, and Steve is going to talk about Joseph next week. We're looking at Judah this week. Judah has three boys called Ur, Onan, and Shelah, but ends up that the line, if you like, of blessing, which is represented by the underlined names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Ephraim, and Judah and Perez, the line of Jesus is actually not going to be through any of Judah's initial three sons, but through Judah having sex with his daughter-in-law and producing twin boys, Perez and Zerah. And Perez, it turns out, will be the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of David and ultimately of Jesus. So this family's a mess, right? You can feel at home in it. Even if your family background is complicated, theirs is too. And the passage we're going to read today is one of the weirdest in the whole book. And we're going to see what God has to say to us through it. Genesis chapter 38, and we're going to read the whole chapter, but beginning at verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Note to self, if someone asks you what you want to name your child, and you go, Ur, just... You never know. It might then become their name, like on the birth certificate and you're done. Now, I don't think that's what it meant in those days, but it's worth bearing in mind not to do that, okay? She conceived, that's the firstborn son called Earth. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan, and he will die for a very strange reason in a moment. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Hezeb when she bore him. So Judah has three boys. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. So she is the other key character in this story. She is married to the oldest son, Ur. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death, which makes Tamar a widow. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So Judah says to his second son, the first son is dead, And his wife has now not got any children. And in those days, it was a common practice to marry your older brother's, your dead older brother's wife. So that's what happens here. And Onan then goes in to to effectively to take her as his wife. But Onan knew that the offspring wouldn't be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now spare a thought for the signer in the 9.30 meeting having to do that story, right? Signing for the death. It's not a job I would have volunteered for, but anyway. Um, And so what we have here is two brothers, both of them married the same woman, and both of them are now dead, so she's a widow twice over. 
Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. She's lost two husbands already. Just look at the story from her point of view for a minute, right? In a very patriarchal culture where men have the power and women often have very little, men have the money and the military might and so on, imagine what it's like to be her. It'll help us to make sense of what she then does about it. If we just, particularly for guys, it's helpful to look at the story like this through women's eyes because what would you do, right? You have no children, You've lost both of your husbands, you have no power, you have no money, you have no land, no inheritance, you've got no hope of being in the people of God, you're desperate, how would you feel and what would you do about it if you're in that position? Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law's going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil. What does a veil make you look like you might be in that culture? A prostitute. Interesting. And wrapping herself up, she sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she hadn't been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? The haggling begins. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. In other words, yeah, I'm not really going to take on faith that you having had sex with me are then just going to go on your way and remember to send a goat. I want something now so that I can, if necessary, blackmail you and expose you as the adulterous fiend you are if it turns out you don't keep your word and pay me for this hour or whatever. Anyway, it's an unpleasant thing to do, but you can see why she's doing it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. That is, three things that prove you are you, that therefore you won't be able to weasel out of if you should choose to. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Notice, Tamar here is using, as many women in Scripture do, is using her intelligence to get the better of men who are more socially powerful but might also be more stupid. <laughs> Never happens today, just saying. But in Scripture, this is a common theme. Like You could read the Old Testament, and probably the New actually, certainly the Old Testament, looking for this theme, and you would be amazed how often it happens. That you have a man who has the power, has the money, has the land, has the physical strength, and you have a woman who has nothing except the fact that she's smarter than he is and she outmaneuvers him to advance the cause of herself, her family, her children, or even the people of God as a whole. Happens a lot. Tamar uses her intelligence to outmaneuver him. Rebecca does it, as we've seen in this story already, with her husband Isaac. Rachel does it with her father Laban. The Hebrew midwives do it to save a whole generation of Jewish boys from being drowned. She, they outmaneuver Pharaoh. Rahab does it. Jael does it. Abigail does it with her stupid husband Nabal. Esther does it with her stupid husband Xerxes, who's the king of Persia, and she saves an entire nation from genocide. Right? We have a good reason as believers to be thankful for women who are smarter than their husbands because they have saved the people of God more than once. And that's what's happening here. 
Please, this is not, I really hope that none of the women in this room are going, I will make notes from this strategy and use it myself. That is not the goal, right? So she gets into God's people the only way she can. And I'm, more seriously, I'm obviously not condoning what she does, but what I am doing is saying, imagine it through her eyes, you can see why she does it, right? When, tw- um, when Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adalamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Naim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. What a colossal hypocrite this man is. You are the one who knocked her up in the first place, and now you want her to be burned for being... Now, again, we can be light-hearted about it, or actually, but we can also say, tragically, that dynamic, imbalance of power between men and women, still exists all around the world today. There are many societies in which a man sleeps with a woman, and it's like, yeah, okay, and a wo- outside of marriage, I mean, and conceives, a woman sleeps with a man outside of marriage, she could be killed. That still happens. Right? This is what she's living with. As she was being brought out, but fortunately she's smarter than that. As she was being brought out, she said word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. The signet, the cord, and the staff. It's like, uh-oh, <laughs> busted for Judah. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I didn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, what on earth are we going to make of this very bizarre story? Now, some of us are already wondering, why are we even reading it? The reason why we're reading it is because we believe that this book is the word of God and all of it, all of it is useful for us to be taught and shaped and to see Jesus somewhere in this story. Now sometimes that's easy, sometimes it's harder, but we read it anyway because we say God has spoken to us through this book. He wants us to read stories like this and say, where is Christ? What does this mean for life? And of course we can do that with this story, but it is kind of harder. Because it shows us broken people doing broken things without an obvious hero. And we like stories with heroes because we say, copy them. But in this story, there isn't one. So what are you going to do about it? Well, a helpful tip, I think, when reading stories like this, which are otherwise inexplicable, is we have to learn how to read the Bible backwards. You have to learn how to start at the end of the story with what we know happens at the end, and who we know that, for instance, Judah and his family turn out to be, and then knowing what we know about Jesus and the salvation of the world, to go back through the story and then find ourselves in Genesis and say, right, given who he turns out to be and what turns out to happen through him, what now can I gather from this story? Because we know who Judah and his family become. An example, you watch Titanic, presumably when you did, you know the ship sinks. 
So you watch the whole movie colored by your awareness of what will happen at the end. And that's where some of the drama comes from. So when they say, yeah, let's go on faster and plow into the sea, there won't be any icebergs out there. You're going, no, you're crazy fool, you're all going to die. Because the story, you know the end. It's called dramatic irony, right? You know the end. And the same, I am not a Star Wars fan at all, right? I would defend my disdain for the boringness of the Star Wars movies to anyone here. Nevertheless, there is dramatic interest of a sort, if you're into that kind of thing, from the fact that in the first three Star Wars movies, you already know who Anakin Skywalker will turn out to be. And a lot of the drama comes from that fact, doesn't it? You know who it's going to be in the end. And because you know who he's going to be, you look at the story through new eyes. I watched um, The Crown on Netflix about nine months ago. Same deal there. Initially, it looks like it's a story about a posh girl called Elizabeth. But because you know that the posh girl is going to become the queen, and you know that she's going to end up dealing in later life with Diana and Charles and all the complexities there, the story has much more dramatic interest and much more meaning because you know how the story ends and who that person will become. The same is true of this story. When Genesis was originally written, everyone knew who Judah was going to turn out to be. And so everyone knew he was going to become a powerful tribe, and everyone knew that he was, his, Perez's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson was going to be King David. And actually, as the story went on, we found out more. Like, reading it now, we know that Judah was going to end up being the only tribe left. Right After King David, all the other tribes would be deported and Judah would be the only one left. We know that in Roman times, it was the land that we now call Israel or Palestine was known as Judea because it was Judah's land. He's the only, only guy who's still there. We know that Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. And we know that Tamar will be included in the genealogy that we read every Christmas. And we know that billions of people around the world, including many here, are going to come and worship Judah's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson as God. And we know that Judaism is going to shape the world beyond all recognition. Like imagine the last 200 years without the Judahites, without the Jews. Imagine the last 200 years without Karl Marx or Albert Einstein or Freud. Right? The world is going to be transformed by Judah's people, by Judah's family. And we know that history is going to end with every tribe and tongue and language worshipping the lion of the tribe of Judah. And because we know all of those things, we can then go back to Genesis 38 and go, are you serious? This guy, this guy, we're still going to include his name in our songs as we worship his distant descendant Jesus? Why in the world? And that, of course, is part of the point. Part of the point of this story is that God uses people exactly like Judah and exactly like Tamar to change the world. People of whom everybody says, really? Her? Why in the world would you use her or him? It shows us that our heroes, all of them, with one exception, our heroes are very flawed people. Right? It shows that we read the Bible and you think, Peter? Seriously? Paul? He's killed people. Really? That guy? Moses? Abraham? Why? You read the history of the church. And you think, wow, this person's great. What a wonderful quote. Martin Luther said what about the Jews? John Calvin did what to that guy? George Whitfield said and did what about slaves? Martin Luther King did what in his personal life? And you have these, these heroes, and then you realize, but they're really flawed. How did God use them? And then you go back to stories like this and think, right from the star, this family, these ancestors through whom God brought Jesus were a mess. 
And so am I. And it gives me hope, actually, because I know that God is not going to disqualify me from being used by him simply because I am a broken mess of a person. God uses broken people. And actually, this isn't the last we hear of Judah because we know that in Genesis 38, we have this story. But at Genesis 49, at the end of the book of Genesis, we are going to see Jacob line up his 12 sons. And we're going to find out which one of the 12 is going to carry the blessing forever. That's a big deal. And the 12 boys are all lined up and Jacob moves along the line. They're now all grown men. Jacob moves along the line, blessing them. And he says, Reuben, you're not going to get the blessing. Because of this bad thing you did. Simeon and Levi, you're not going to get the blessing because of this bad thing you did. And meanwhile, all of us as Christians are reading the book going, we know what's going to happen. He's going to give it to Joseph. Joseph is the hero. Joseph is the dreamer. Joseph had this dream of his brothers brothers bowing down to him. He fed the world. He's brilliant. He resisted temptation. Yeah, go Joseph. And we'll hear more about him next week. And we're expecting that the blessing as we go along the line will go to Joseph and instead... In Genesis 49 and verse 8, we read this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. See, he's taking Joseph's dream and saying, Joseph, in the end, doesn't get that dream. Judah does. Judah is a lion's cub, which is where the expression lion of Judah comes from. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And then he says, the scepter, this is Jacob, the father, blessing his son. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's star from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples or the nations. In other words, Judah, your distant descendant, is going to be king of the world, and all the nations will bring worship to him. That sounds incredibly unfair to me. Right? He's disqualified Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. You did bad things. And here's what they were. You don't have the promise. Yet Judah, who slept with his daughter-in-law and then wanted to have her burned because he got caught, effectively. And it's only because he got caught, rather, that she got away with it. But he wanted to have her burned. Judah, for all of that evil, nevertheless receives that promise. Why on earth? And yes, God uses broken people. But it can't just be that, because all of the brothers are broken. But God specifically gives the blessing of Judah. It looks like somewhere between Genesis 38 and Genesis 49, something else happened that made Judah first among his brothers. We're going to see what it is. Genesis 43. It's years later, and now Joseph is prime minister in Egypt. Do we have Joseph in the house? We do, indeed. Marching out, looking extremely impressively Joseph-like. Um Joseph is now prime minister in Egypt. So we're going to hear a lot more about him next week, so we're not going to fill in all the story here. All we need to know for now is that his brothers don't know who he, they don't recognize him because it's been many years, and he is the prime minister in Egypt. And meanwhile, Joseph's father and Judah and Benjamin's father, who we have coming out here, um, Jacob, Jacob and sons, um, Ian Moore, looking far more aged than he usually is. Um, and then I think we may also have a Benjamin in the house as well, which is wonderful. So yeah, come on, come on out, so, come on out. So all, all good, all good, great. Okay. Um, so Jacob is back home. He's old and aging, and he had two sons by his by his the woman he loved, Rachel. Right? These two, Benjamin and Joseph. There are ten other brothers. I'm I'll be Judah, right? But the other the other nine brothers are with me, and. 
his entire life has been dominated by regret of the loss of this son for many years. He thinks he's dead. And of course, therefore, an absolute obsession with and doting on the youngest boy, Benjamin, who says, I cannot leave this guy. Okay, I can't leave him. And what happens is that the, the brothers... The brothers... The brothers hit famine, right? The whole family has famine. And so the brothers go down, except Benjamin. He's left behind. The brothers go down to Egypt to buy food. And it turns out they're negotiating with their brother, but they don't know it's their brother. And so they come and say, can we have, can we have some grain? And he sells them some grain. But he says, if you ever come back, you must bring the youngest boy with you. Because if you don't, you will be killed. And so the brothers go back to the land with their grain and say, Dad, if we ever run out, Benjamin's going to have to come. And in the end... They do run out, and Jacob says, no way are you taking my boy. I've lost one, I cannot lose the other. And Benjamin's going to stay at home. And the only thing that means that the brothers can get out of it is that Judah, me, Judah steps up and says to the father, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And eventually Jacob says, okay, I will let you be the pledge of the youngest boy, be it on your head. Benjamin bids a tearful farewell, and they all go down together. You don't have to pretend to be old. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, Benjamin and the, and the brothers all come together, and they come down and meet Joseph. And of course, in the, in the unraveling of things, what Judah has said he will do has to end up happening because Joseph plays a trick on the, all the brothers and ends up taking Benjamin, effectively saying, I'm going to need to take this guy as my slave because of what you did. And Judah, at this point, has to honor his word to his father, and he does. And Judah says, again, later on in chapter 43, Judah says, pleads with his brother, who he doesn't know is his brother, as soon as my father sees that the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant, as in me, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Keep going. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain. In other words, let me go instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? And it's one of those moving chapters. I I just find myself crying when I read it often on my own because I find it so moving, this act of substitution and the grief that comes upon Joseph who then bursts into tears and the family in the end is reconciled. But what I find powerful about it is that the cycle of sin and injustice in this family is broken by a substitute, by somebody who goes up and says, listen, he by rights should be your slave, but I promised that I would be his pledge and his substitute, so please take me instead of the boy and let him go free because I don't want to go back to my dad unless I've taken him with me. You see how the story works. Let's thank these guys. Very good. Can you see why Judah may have been chosen as the representative brother to be the ancestor of King Jesus in that story. Can you see how the great-great-great-great-grandfather does exactly what the great-great-great-great-grandson will do in just a shadow of a former, former sort of way, in a low-grade way? What he does is he does just what Jesus will subsequently do. Judah says, listen, I have said I will stand in his place. I don't want to see him captive, and I don't want to go back to my dad unless... I've got him with me, so I'll be your slave. Take me instead. And you and I live lives where we are 
through our own mistakes and through things that have happened to us, we are in captivity. And we are rightly under the, to the service of a power more powerful than us. And many of us, are tra- you, you read stories like Judah and Tamar and you see yourself in it. You say, yeah, that thing that happened to me, that thing that I did that I wish I could take back, I've been captive as a result of that. I was a slave as a result of that. And it is only because Jesus steps into our, our lives and our world and goes up to and says, I don't want to go back to my father unless I've got them with me. So let me be the pledge. Let me take the blame. I will be the substitute for her. I will be the substitute for him. I don't want to go back to my father unless this guy, unless she is not with me. I want to go back to my father rejoicing with all of these people free because I took the blame and became the substitute so that they could go free. And that's how Jesus is ultimately going to bring the story to completion. Jesus is going to be the ultimate substitute like Judah, his distant ancestor, because Christianity revolves around a substitution that changes everything. Judah substitutes for his brother Benjamin. And then a thousand years after that, David... Judah's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson substitutes for Saul, Benjamin's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. And a thousand years after that, Jesus, Judah's lion, will substitute for everybody in the tribe of Benjamin and everybody in the tribe of Judah and every Jew and every Gentile in the world ever and say, I don't want to go back to my father unless they come too. That's the shape of the gospel. Jesus... Jesus says, take me, not them. I will be crushed for sin, not Israel. I will be ashamed, not Peter. I will face execution, not Barabbas. I will face justice rather than this guy dying on my left so that he might go straight to paradise. Father, would you forgive them because they don't know what they do. Jesus, our substitute, is the one to whom Judah was pointing and to whom the whole of this book has been leading us to wait because we're anticipating a moment of substitution that will set us free. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for this extraordinary book, the number of ways in which it shadows and paints out for us what you are like and how you came to save us. But Lord, we thank you most of all for your son Jesus, who came as our representative and our substitute to become enslaved and even killed so that we might be free from the consequences of what we have done and of what has been done to us and able to live with you and him forever free from our chains. We are so thankful for all of those benefits, but ultimately for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.